Welcome to On The Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. Hi, I'm Andy Simon. As you know, I'm a corporate anthropologist, and my job is to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. And for our podcast, I go looking for people who can help you do that as well. Our job is to get you off the brink. But unless you can see things through a fresh lens, begin to understand them in a new way, you get stuck or stalled. Or you know what you know and your brain doesn't really want to change anyhow. Thank you very much. Please go away. I'm happy where I am. But today, the times they are changing. And we are in a world that is full of turmoil everywhere of all kinds, from COVID to the Ukraine, to what's going on in corporations, to DEI, ESG. Everybody is having a challenging time talking to each other. And so I brought you today a wonderful woman who's going to help you think about the conversations that we're having and how to turn them into really growth experiences. The whole world is a conversation. We're having a global conversation right now. So today we have Rose Fass here. Rose, I met, fortunately, serendipitously at the Women's Business, pardon me, at the Westchester Business Council, where she was presenting an absolutely brilliant presentation. And she's going to share some of those insights with you. But it was really so touching. I said, wow, can I share her with our audience as well? Now, the Westchester Business Council is a marvelous organization. You have no idea how many people I've met there. It's a really cool place. Um, but each time I meet somebody and want to share them, they add some dimension to our day today. So, Rose, let me tell you a little bit about Rose, and then she'll tell you about her own journey. Rose knows, as she says, how to use her unique gift to take a mess and quickly turn, put in place effective steps to teach desired outcomes. Interesting, isn't it? So she loves to change, as I do. She's a natural facilitator who connects with all types of people at all levels of an organization, from the C-suite to the people closest to the work. She has over 45 years of experience in technology and consumer-based industries. And during her career, Rose has opened new businesses in the United States, has been a general manager of a full P&L with full P&L responsibility and led major corporate transformations. She was a chief transformation officer at Xerox, and she's going to tell you a lot about some of her learnings and why at this point she's ready to help others do all kinds of transformation. These are times they are changing. As Bob Dylan told us in the 60s, it hasn't changed much. Rose, thank you for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's interesting that whenever I hear my bio, I have to smile a little because I go back to being this little kid. Um, uh, in a very small neighborhood with a group of young Italian girls like myself, you know, just walking around and trying to figure out what it was that we were going to do when we grew up. Um, so the interesting part about all of this is I run a company right now called Fast Forward Consulting Group. Uh, and it's probably the culmination of everything I ever did at Xerox, later went to Gartner with the now CEO of ServiceNow, Bill McDermott, and then met my uh, colleague and partner there, Gavin McMahon, and we started this about 21 years ago. And I still feel like I'm a student of the subject that I talk about. So I want to I want to bring myself into the room as Little Rose. Uh, so you know who I am. And then uh, we can decide whether any of us are a big piece of stuff or we all bio into this world with our brilliance and our muddy shoes. So I used to live on uh, in East Utica, New York. That's where I was born um, on Rupter Street. And we had a four room cold water flat 
that my dad worked very hard on kind of getting it to uh, where we would have hot water. Mom wouldn't have to boil it on top of the stove, believe it or not. I'm 72 years old. And I can actually think back to those days very fondly. But my claim to fame was I lived down the street from Annette Funicello, who, <laughs> for all of you young women, was the absolute apple of every guy's eye. And she was on the Mouseketeers. And uh, we were just all a bunch of Italian girls who could dance and sing. And we were all cute. And we just could not understand why it was that Annette got discovered by Walt Disney and ended up in Hollywood. And we were left in East Utica. So uh, for many, many days, I walked with a group of Italian girls home complaining whining, saying bad things that I'm not very proud of, green with jealousy. And I remember this one day, it was unusual because it was early spring. And if you know anything about upstate New York winters, they're horrible. But the weather was nice. And I saw my dad picking dandelions out of the front lawn. Um, and I went up to him very quietly because I just wanted to scoot by. My father was a World War II Marine, a published poet, and conversant in all the Romance languages. Oh. So it was a very interesting guy. And I remember walking by and him saying, Rose, and I halted. And I turned around, this little nine-year-old looking at him. And he said, um, what do you see? And he held up this dandelion. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to do this. This philosopher, I don't want to do this. And I said, I don't know, Dad, I see a dandelion. And he said, yes, darling, but I want you to look wider. I want you to look deeper. I want you to look beyond just this dandelion. And he looked at me and I said, I don't know, Dad, what do you see? I think at that point I had learned how to be very good at rhetorical responses, especially when I didn't have an idea of what to say. And I was so down in the dumps that I just didn't have the energy to get into it. And I usually did, because I think for my dad, I was the one that appreciated the poetry and the philosophy. So he looked at me and he said, darling, I see the end of a long winter. I see the dawning of a new season. I see lovers walking hand in hand, exchanging silent I love yous. I see children picking these out of the lawns and handing them to their moms to put them in juice glasses on the sills as a means of saying I love you. And I looked at him and I said, you see a lot, Dad. And he said, Rose, soon this dandelion, this beautiful expression of spring is going to become a weed. And we, like many homeowners, are going to go to the nurseries and we're going to get the stuff that will take it out of the lawn because we want to rid ourselves of this one beautiful expression of spring that's now an ugly reminder of cleaning up the yard. And I looked at him. He said, because soon, honey, the beautiful flowers are going to come along, the irises, the tulips, and yes, even the roses. But the beauty of the dandelion is not in its first expression of spring. It's in the root because it's resilient. And all of us know that no matter how much we hack at them, next year they come back double fold. <laughs> uh, we named you Rose. Wise, wise poet. poet. Yes. yes, please. We named you Rose, but roses are fragile. In your heart, you need to be a dandelion. 
That is my signature story. I remember that day of standing there on that little patch of lawn and crying in the arms of the Marine and in the arms of the poet. And for whatever reason, letting it all out and feeling like I may be enough. I didn't (laughs) think I was, but maybe I'm enough. Um, And I think we women struggle with that. And so for the rest of my journey, um, I have reminded myself that weeds get kicked around and they get hacked at and we just have to be resilient. And so today, I think that's probably more true than ever. Um, And it has held me together for many, many years, Andrea. So I want you to know who I really am, the little Rose, the woman who became who she is today, and that I am a culmination of all of those beautiful moments when you learn through pain. Now, by saying that, though, I guess I visualized that scene with your father as exhilarating, maybe painful. Um, but he was imparting onto you wisdom that's really hard to come by otherwise. Um, who else would you trust to listen to that way? So you may have cried, but I have a hunch he had a long-term impact on the way you see the world. It is yeah. not headline. It's all of the implications and the meaning that it has. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. The Marine, unlike the philosopher, said one rule for my two brothers and me. Be up at 0600, ready for company. (laughs) Every day of my life, I am out of bed by six o'clock and I get dressed no matter where I'm going. Uh, My hair is combed. I've showered. I'm presentable. And so are my brothers. Um, And in his mind, it was the ready for company meant a lot of things. Um, Were you ready to be gracious? Were you ready to be approachable? Um, Were you ready to be aware, conscious, um, willing to help? Um, All of those things culminated in that one little statement, be up at 0600 and ready for company. And I've kind of never forgotten that. Uh, Today, uh, with people working remotely, um, I notice they get on the camera and oftentimes they'll take the camera off because they're not camera ready uh, <laughs> or they're in sweatpants and they're looking draggy. And when you don't feel good about yourself, it's hard to feel good about life. Yes. And we're living in a time when I think more than ever, we have to bring our best selves to whatever we're doing because it's going to get harder before it gets easier. I really believe that. You're making an important point about our best selves. And I want you to talk a little bit about the career that you had, because we could stay on your the lessons learned in your youth a lot. But the best self is a very interesting concept. I mean, we're working with a lot of women as coaches, and they are successful, but unhappy. They've achieved a position, they're a partner in a firm, they've got degrees, they're financially successful, and they're asking, isn't there more? We talked a lot about who am I? What's my purpose? What's my best self? So a little bit more about as you got into your career, you began to carve out an area around transformation. Sounds like your father became living in these companies a little bit further. Yeah, give yeah. Me perspective if you so, can. Um, and by the way, Andrea, you talk about youth and fathers. I, I often relate to men in the work that I do. And mm-hmm. I tell them there's no more important person in a young woman's life 
than their father. Yes. Mom plays a role, but father gives them the sense of validation and approval of who they are as women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's critical just as mothers help their sons become more approachable and more uh, yin and yang. Um, so for me, my early career, after I got out of uh, Boston University, I started at Saks Fifth Avenue um, in a uh, executive training program. And I had two mentors. I had a uh, Nan Edelstein, God rest her soul, um, very gypsyish, wore all these crazy skirts and crazy blouses and lots of bangles, but knew Judith Lieber, Bottega, every possible fashion brand you could think of in accessories. And I was her assistant. And I was also assistant to the blouse buyer who was Miss Janet. And I'm not kidding. Little jab bow, little glasses like a librarian, always in the black pencil skirt, white blouse, buttoned to the, to the teeth. They could not have been more different. Jan told me, you have to learn how to be creative. Get every bit of data and information you need to make good, sound decisions, but let that be one data point. Then I want you to go with your gut, what you feel, your know-how, your experience, what, how something speaks to you. Then I went up to Janet, and she taught me process, and it was so procedural. I remember taking an inventory where every single blouse had to be counted, and in those days, these departments were massive. And I walked around and I was like spinning and I was trying to take a few little shortcuts. And she said to me, Miss Maza in my maiden name. And I said, yes, Miss Janet. She said, you are not to take shortcuts. You will one day take shortcuts, but that will be after you learn the long way home. How interesting. And I'm going to teach you the long way home. The unique part about this was that she and Nan were really good friends. They could not have been more different, but they understood each other in their own way. And neither of them really took shortcuts. Most of them understood what it meant to take the long way home. Years later, working with young people and trying to get them to understand that there are steps to getting to an outcome, that it doesn't just happen because you wish it so. I would say to them, taking shortcuts, you can't do that till you learn the long way home. And here's the long way. It's like doing math in classes. You do the long version, and then you can get to the quick answer. Um, So for me, my whole career has been pretty much about working in different areas that required both my gut and my ability to be disciplined. Ah. Very interesting. I grew up in the retail business. I was supposed to take over our family firm. It was I love a it. very big store in Manhattan, a department store in the old family firm model. What was it? It's called Walman's Department Store. And oh, sure. Yep. And I uh, I was being trained to take it over until I became. Oh, my God. And but as I'm listening to you, I vividly remember trips to the market with my grandmother and my mother to go buying. And I remember saying to my grandmother, how do you know what to buy? She said, well, Andrea, I remember her voice so well. And she said to me, one third will sell full price. One third will sell on sale. One third will walk out the door. Now, if we're good, well, we'll have enough money coming out of that to pay the bills and do it again. Isn't that, and it's so true. <laughs> and that's my vivid, remember, I'm being taught, I mean, I remember putting blouses on the hangers. You were counting the blouses. I was putting them on the hangers with Leo in the basement. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We did it all. I remember Judy Garland coming in to buy a Rosanna sweater. Now, I'm really dating myself here, but Rosanna sweaters were weaved in such a way that it was a staple in every woman's closet. And in those days, believe it or not, women wanted to be a size 12. (laughs) They wanted to be curvy and terrific. So she came in emaciated. Um, and she insisted on this size 12 sweater. And I said to her, you're going to swim in this sweater. You need a size six. We didn't have twos and fours and zeros. Six was the smallest size back then. So ladies, we actually did get to eat. Um, she insisted. And then she called in my department manager and she said, uh, I want to talk to her boss. Um, and it's like, oh my God. Um, and the whole thing was, you give her what she wants. She's a size 12 in her mind. She's a size 12. Later, I got a call from upstairs. They said, wrap all of Miss Garland's things up and we'll send them over to the hotel. And that was the end of the conversation. And I learned that being technically right wasn't necessarily socially effective. And that's when I later put together the technical, social, and political spheres, which are a big part of the book uh, that I've written before called The Chocolate Conversation and the book I'm writing now, The Leadership Conversation, Making Bold Change One Conversation at a Time. We We live in this technically right space where we have the facts. We know what we're doing. We're going to say it the way we're going to say it. But sometimes we have to socially adjust to what a person is capable of experiencing in that moment mm-hmm. and getting somebody there by connecting with them, not through facts and through your technical expertise, but through that human connection. And then ultimately positioning it in a way that they feel like they came out of this a winner. Um, about your I, both your first book and your current book, because, you know, me an anthropologist, my affection is with understanding the un, un- understood women, people. Um, I we, love that. You know, and I love that. We, we really intuitively watch what goes on and observe and listen. <clears throat> people can't really tell you what they're doing, to your point. And when you look at data, it has no meaning out of context. My Afro 101 professor, I still hear saying to me, there is no data. Data do not, exp- do not exist out of context. Their meaning is set into the context. Interesting. But the other thing that we've learned is that people decide with the heart, the gut, the eyes, <clears throat> and then the data in the brain begins to operate. And that means we have to experience each other. We've got to feel each other. We really don't know what it means. The reason I love my podcast to be video or audio is people see differently. But yeah, as, they do. Right. But as you're thinking about it, the first book and the second book you're writing now are all about conversations. Yeah, they so are. Talk about your passion. So I, think, I think for me, and Andrea, you put it perfectly, one of my dearest friends uh, that I got to know when I first started at Xerox then went to Palo Alto Research and then later came with her to Gardner. And then here, early days at Fast Forward, was an anthropologist. And I just loved her, Susan, because she always said that to me. She said, Rose, there's their side, this side, and somewhere in there, there's the truth. And then there's the person who's observing the truth. (laughs) And I used to think, oh, my God, I this. And we had a, a gig with Estee Lauder where they wanted to know what was important to women around mascara. And 
Susan just sat on trains and watched people put it on and <laughs> watch them in cars. And I was like, oh, my God. And she goes, well, what's important to you? I said, well, at night when I want to give myself a fresh, you have to take it all off because it clumps when you put it all back on again. And later they came out with the conditioner that you could literally put over a mascara and then put it on. And we were part of that patent. Um all in the conversation, conversations with women about what was important, conversations for me, the first and the most important one is the one you have with yourself. Yes. What's that conversation that's going on in your head? What's, what's your head telling you? What have you done that maybe was right or wrong? So I'm going to take a little moment here. I have a colleague that works for me here, uh, Liz, works with me, um, and I adore her. She happens to live nearby. She put her car in park and realized she had forgotten two presents in the house, left the dog in the car, handbag, and just quickly, 30 seconds, ran to the apartment, grabbed the stuff, got back, and the handbag was gone. Um, and she beat herself up about that for three straight days in a row, but I only left for 30 seconds, but I only did. And this is what we do to ourselves. We beat ourselves up over the mistakes that we made and we don't celebrate the fact that we've learned something, mm-hmm. um, that today people are inflation is killing them. You're in a bus stop. Someone's riding a bus. So they're not doing as well as maybe you are in the car. Yeah. They get out. They see an open door, they grab a handbag because it's something to get them by for whatever period of time. And whatever karma was involved in what you owed that individual from some other life, maybe, it got taken care of in that moment. And namaste. Let's not worry about it. Let's not get ourselves all worked up. Yes, it's disturbing. But at the end of the day, we are going to make mistakes Our victories will keep us buoyant in life, but our mistakes are what are going to teach us in life. I really believe that. And now a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey, Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, Where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves 
very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, and my, to add to that, though, that self, that Liz had a damaged self, one of the things that we often say is that flip it around and begin to express, I think what you're saying, the gratitude. What are we yes. grateful for? Because it changes the whole, and we manage our minds. The mind does exactly what it thinks you want it to do. Once you understand that, you can be unhappy or you can have a lesson learned. I'm grateful he showed me I will never do that again. Right. I, right. I, I've learned that, that the little time I took was really unnecessary to do it that way. I mean, all the things that turn negative lemons into lemonade. Right. Part of that, building that story. Uh, it's a little like your dad with his dandelion and you answer right. him and it's a dandelion. And he said, push, go further. And so to your point, that self-care that we need and that self-awareness comes from taking every experience and turning it into something else. Yeah, because we're always going to, you know, nobody's out there. I don't trust perfect people. I wrote about <laughs> that in my first book. Um, I, I, like think all, I think we're all a little messy. We're all a little messy. <laughs> but and tell me again. Because the listener has to hear it, because I, I think Rose has just said, well, I don't trust perfect people. Mm, I, go ahead. Keep going. We're all a little messy. Go ahead. Yeah. And I and I kind of feel this way very strongly. I look at Goldie Meyer and I think of what she went through when she became prime minister. And it, it was messy. Uh, but what an incredible character. Right. Um, Gandhi was messy. A lot of these incredible leaders that we knew about Winston Churchill never got out of bed sober. Um, <laughs> Very messy guy, but leadership is messy. And if you are willing to take that on, you can obviously do something uniquely different in the world. I look at Stephen Jobs as one of the great leaders of our time in innovation. Not so much people leadership, but in innovation. And at the end of his life, he finally came to grips with the fact that, you know, wow. Uh, I've lived this incredible life, but it's coming to a much shorter halt than I had anticipated. And yet he was very messy, lost his company, got it back. Um, what I say to people is management is something you can plan for. It's the management of work. It's the management of plans. It's all about the stuff that we get to look ahead at and do. But leadership happens in the moment. It happens when a Rosa Parks is asked to give up her seat on the bus. It happens when um, at the worst moment in your life, you are going to have to have the courage to do something that you otherwise would be terrified to do. And yet you do it. Um, that's leadership in the moment. We don't get to plan for that. And if we can accept the fact, as I said earlier, that we come into this world with our brilliance and our muddy shoes, and that life is messy, that we can't expect perfection, and we can't hold ourselves accountable to perfection, then we can do what we need to do as all individuals and just progress. Yep. Uh, one conversation at a time. And I do believe that, Andrea. We're in a conversation right now, um, and we have had very different backgrounds, and yet some very common ground. Both started our careers in retail. Mm -hmm. um, you went on to become an anthropologist. I got to work with one for a long time that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I've taken my business career to heights I never dreamed I would be at. Um, and I have the opportunity to work with C-level executives 
And when they ask me how I think I know or why it is I'm saying what I'm saying, I go, it's easy. I'm 72. I'm at least 20 years older than you. And I've made every damn mistake that I could possibly make up to this point. And I'm still making them. So I'm sharing you the benefit of that. Um, And in the book, it's a book of stories. It's a book of stories about different leaders, different experiences, my journey as a young woman to my business career, uh, and all the different ways in which we sabotage what we are capable of. You know that phrase that came out very popular uh, a few years back, don't go there. I absolutely hated it, Andrea. I'd be like, I'm packed and ready to go. (laughs) I don't want someone to tell me don't go there. That means this conversation isn't safe. Let's not have it. The conversation is as safe as you choose to make it, if you can have a civil discourse. Um, And so I have a chapter in the first book, go there. Find a way to go there. So many times when you brought up the fact that women are unhappy in their current roles, it's because they have not expressed what they're distressed about. It's like Cassandra in Greek tragedy. The voice is trying to come out and it's not. And we have to make ourselves known. And I don't mean in an alpha, overly feministic way, but to be real, to come out and say, look, this isn't working for me. I need other things. And today, these people in big positions within corporations, whether they're women or men, are willing to listen. They don't want the erosion of their diverse employees. They don't want that. They want you to stay. So if ever there's a time to express yourself using the right way to speak. So let's stay on that. This is a new book that Rose is working on for our listeners. She has a first book. Uh, Did you call it Conversation? Chocolate Conversation. I knew there was chocolate in conversation. I wasn't sure of the sequence. Because we love chocolate. Yes, I do love chocolate. But the chocolate conversation has now led to a whole new book. But we're talking about conversation. All of life is conversation. Yes. Laser, the late organizational anthropologist, wrote great stuff about conversational intelligence and the power of we. And, and what you learn from the neurosciences is that when you say in a conversation, I, the neurosciences, the brain goes, ooh, run away. The amygdala hijacks it. It flees it. The cortisol said, this is going to be painful. Don't hang around. Off you go. But when you say we, the we brings out all kinds of good oxytocin and wonderful hormones that say, oh, let's bond. This is the love that we feel. So there's real science underneath the issue of how. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And there is real science. You, Rose, tell us about the book you're writing and the science. Right. That you with and- well, it's a book of conversations, right? It's a book of conversations that with myself, with others. Um, I think what you said earlier, I really care that somebody gets heard and gotten, mm-hmm. that that you know you acknowledge. I remember facilitating a, a, a very large group of um, different cultural uh, uh, people, like from Latin America, Portugal, um, people that were there from France, and we had these earphones on 
because they were getting translated all the languages into English. And at the same time, we were facilitating all these different languages. There was this one little Portuguese guy and he stood up and he was trying to explain something to his boss and it was completely misinterpreted. One of the things that I call the chocolate conversation, just talking right back. And the boss got very annoyed and I said, stop for a minute. Um, and I kind of took off my earphones and I said, um, can you just translate for me? Yes. And I said, this is what I think I heard you say. And he was C, C, C. And I said to him, and so I translated and took the whole thing and I brought it back. And in that moment, there was such ah, yes. relief. And I thought to myself, I teared up because in my heart of hearts, the worst thing in the world is when you're standing there trying to express yourself in another language even, and someone is just not getting what you're saying and completely <laughs> misinterpreting. Because we spend more time on our own point of view than trying to understand what is it that you're saying. So I think today in business, we got to start listening to people at the front and uh, front of the business, the ones that are closest to the customers. It doesn't matter what age someone is. There's truth that is worth listening to. <clears throat> I also feel that business is the last value-added space right now because our institutions have failed us. People are looking at journalism and they're saying, where is it? Where is the unbiased truth? We're, we're getting nothing but opinion and vitriol conversations. The public stage has become a boxing ring. Yes. Um, everybody is walking around that, that whole term of psychological safety. I, I, when I hear it, I think, oh my God, it sounds so clinical. What it really means is, can I be comfortable here? Can I be in my own skin? Can I wake up in the morning and feel like it's going to be okay? And I think we owe that to each other. I think we need to become more human. We need to provide that peace of mind to our children, to our friends, to our family, as much as we can. And we need to find a spiritual essence in all of us. And this has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with who are we? Why are we here? It's not just about um, the momentary little things that we go through. It's really bigger than that. And so my books are about how do you have conversations that are inclusive, that shift people's points of view from a worldview they're stuck in, establish new standards, ally some concerns, the chocolate conversation is about worldviews, standards, and concerns. The new book is about being bold with your conversation, saying what you mean, not what you think people want to hear, but doing it in a way that you can get your point across in a loving and caring and compassionate way such that people feel touched. Um, you saw me at the business, Westchester Business Council, and I showed that wonderful little film of Mary Jackson, yes. the NASA engineer. She walked in, and those of you who have seen Hidden Figures know which, what I'm talking about, the film. This was a woman who needed to go to a school to get an engineering degree so she could become a NASA engineer. She was brilliant, but she was a woman of color. Yeah. Walking in at a time when the level of bias against people of color was so serious. And if she had gone up against that judge 
with hatred, resentment, um, vitriol about something that was totally unfair and she would have been right. Mm -hmm. She never would have been effective. But she went to that judge with a different heart and she found common ground. You've been first in a lot of places. I need to be first going to that school. We can have this in common. And I shared that at the at the business council because that to me was the culmination of one of the better conversations I've been exposed to. Yes. Now let's talk though, as you you have a passion and a purpose. You really do want to see change happen in how we get along, how we listen to each other, how we learn from each other. And there's something more here in your life journey um, that really is transformational that you see that it's a time where we have to not simply accept the way we are, but begin to change the way we go. And, and, and I'm anxious to hear if you have any methods in your little toolkit here to share or some ideas about how we can begin to multiply a podcast is a podcast, but my whole purpose in life is to multiply it so that people take it and, and share it. And in the process, learn something they can actually do with it. Some doables here. Yeah. So I think, one of the things that's helped me a lot, and I, I can't take credit for it, it was given to me um, by a wonderful professor at MIT that I happen to be in touch with, just said, when you want to have a conversation, particularly one that may have a little conflict associated with it, Rose, have the meta conversation, a conversation about the conversation, get permission to have it. That was very helpful to me because I would be, are you open to an alternative point of view? <laughs> and Yes, even if it's going to be very different than the one that you have. Yes. Um, do you mean it? <laughs> yes, I mean it. Okay. I'm going to take a risk here and say something that really flies in the face of your experience, your lived experience, and what you've just shared with me. And I just want you to consider it. I don't want you to agree with me. I just want you to consider it. Um and that's helped me a lot to be able to have that kind of conversation. And I'll do it often with, with a, a CEO and they're like, okay, and they, they take a breath. I think also when I'm getting feedback, I don't know about you, Andrea, but I still, if it's not going to be good, you know, I still have that. And what I've learned from my years here is to stop feeling that. I'm going to feel it initially, no matter what I do, but to step back from it and say, this is just a data point. Mm -hmm. It's not defining my entire persona. It's not defining my past, my future, my present. It's a data point. Let me take it in. Let me think about it. Let me try to get myself back centered. I think staying in the present, very important. Stay in the conversation you're having, not the one you're telling yourself in your head. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, Having a conversation is not waiting for your time to speak. No. Well, but you know, th these are important points. And as the listener is taking their notes, as I know you often do, um, there's some lessons here about navigating interpersonal relationships, having a, a permission conversation before you have the conversation. It levels the playing field. It's not adversarial. It's communication. It's a sharing. There's something. It's a we. 
in, in a sense, it's that we that Judith Glazer spoke about, which opens your mind up to something I'm going to enjoy as opposed to flee in some fashion. Um, the second thing is that as you're going through this, I learned a long time ago to say something like, it sounds like you are upset about something. Mm-hmm. And if I put it into their zone, it becomes a, a, a conversation of listening as opposed to having a, a point of view about it. And the right. more I would say to my staff, I mean, I was an EVP of a bank and I had lots of folks and, and I would learn that and practice it because I didn't want to jump to any conclusions. It was easy to and become a command and control leader, but I was very engaging. And I say, it sounds like you're having some difficulty with your manager. No, 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 no. I say, well, and it sounds like you're unhappy with your job. No, no, no. I mean, you can really watch the responses come back as long as you kept it in their zone as opposed to trying to take charge of it. And then my, my third point is that I often ask people, your feedback point is really important. Um, I teach a leadership academy, two of them, and we teach feedback because every conversation is a feedback. It's in the feedback loop. And I say to people, if you really want to get the right feedback, say to somebody, what's one thing you would like me to do differently? You'd be amazed at how interesting that goes. Yes, it's a great Um, question. It's a wonderful question. And most people are afraid to ask it. I know and afraid to hear it. They're afraid to ask it. And they're afraid because they're afraid to hear it. Um, Very often, even, and you may have found this too, Andrea, if you say to someone, I sense that you're upset about something, they might feel like, oh, are you threatening me? But it's more along the line of just sort of stepping back from it and saying, you know, um, we all have concerns. Yes. I know I have them. Um, what might be one of your concerns? Yes. What are you What are you feeling right now? What are you? Um, I know. What do you like about what you do? And what are the things that, if you could change them, if you had a magic wand and you could just change this one thing, what might that be? Just giving people a chance to step outside of themselves and depersonalize a little. That sounds like a. It's counterintuitive to what I've been saying. It's. Sometimes if we can step out of ourselves, this is another anthropological, uh, you know, method that Susan taught me, stand outside of yourself, you know, observe it. Don't try to get linked to it. Just observe it. Um, and, And it was a hard thing to learn to do, but it's extraordinarily freeing. When you can sort of step outside and say, what's really bothering me? Why am I so stressed about this? Um, and we're going to be stressed. These are stressful times. I felt bad about that poor tennis player, Javokovic, who's, you know, he's got a healthy body. He's not anti-vax. He's come right out and said it. I'm not anti-vaccinating. I just don't want to put any foreign things into my body. Now, whatever side of the argument you're on, the newscasters kept trying to pin him as an anti-vax and he's the sweetest guy and there's a sweetness about him. And I said, you know, he's probably a health nut. He believes in alternative medication. Have we tried to understand his point of view? Or are we just throwing this out at him that he's now part of the anti-vax movement? Well, but, you know, we've started a little bit earlier about journalists and the boxes they're trying to put people in. Oh, my God, Andrea. But, Rose, we have to wrap up. As much okay, as fun. This so, has been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's really it's an honor and a pleasure. We have a brilliant woman here, Rose Fass. I want her to give you one or two things she doesn't want you to forget, because we often remember the ending more than the beginning. 
although her dandelion story is one that you're going to hold on to. <laughs> and yes. I can see it already. Some things, Rose, that, that really are important to leave the, the listener. So I would, I have to say, remember that everybody, everybody bios in with their brilliance and their muddy shoes. Take that away. Nobody's perfect. That's something I want you to take away. The second thing is, remember the conversation you're having with yourself. That's the single most conversation, most important conversation, because that's the one that's going to shape the conversations you have with others. And when you do have a conversation with someone else, think about the context you're in, Mm -hmm. the social connection you need to make, how things need to be positioned, and think about having the conversation about the conversation before you jump right in. That would be the three things that I would say. And my dandelion story is just, if you're another weed, I'm happy to have you in the field. <laughs> oh, this has been such fun. So we have had Rose Fast here. Rose, if they want to reach you, where can they do that? They can do it at fastforward.com. Hello at fastforward.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. Yes, she's Rose Fast. Yes. yes. Everybody's on LinkedIn. Thank you, LinkedIn. It's a great place to find the world. Now, yes. for my listeners, Thank you for coming. As always, our audience is wonderful. Rose has given you some great insights today about all kinds of things, not only growing up, but also really becoming who we are, listening to our conversations about who we are, and also finding a path to where we find purpose and passion and a real meaning. We understand what we're doing and why. And it comes down to conversations. All conversations are there. That's how we survive. And the question is, who are we having conversations with? And what are we listening to? And listening has become real important. Um, Thank you for coming to our podcast. As you know, we're ranked in the top 5% global podcast, which is truly an honor and a privilege. Wonderful. It's wonderful. wonderful. And I bring on guests who I think have ideas they want to share with you. My books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and your local bookseller. My Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business, Rose could have been in there. And I have the stories of 11 women who have smashed the myths. They didn't listen to people who said, oh, you shouldn't. And you can't. And no, we don't. Because they said, of course I can. And they are really great role models for other women. And on the brink, a fresh lens to take your business to new heights. It's about how a little anthropology can help your business grow. And as you know, we spend a lot of time consulting with clients and helping them see, feel, and think in new ways like you. So that's our story for today. It's been great. Very nice. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Wish you all the best. Okay, darling. Bye.